hydrogen has one electron in its outermost shell. In its Can I just pause you for a second, Alistair? Sure. You're using your professional voice. <laughs> Thank you. I'm talking slowly and thinking through this, because I don't yes. want to get it wrong. Hydrogen. <laughs> Hydrogen. Yes. I Six. like it. I'm enjoying it. Hello and welcome to Not Yet a Doctor, the podcast where we procrastinate solving our own complex research topics to explain how scientists solve complex research topics. My name is Alistair. I am a analytical chemistry PhD student at Queen's University. My name is Sienna. I am a neuroscience student at McGill University doing a PhD. My name is Beth. I'm doing my PhD in particle physics at Sapienza University of Rome. And we are the PhD3! <laughs> That's getting more and more corny every time we do it. <laughs> I know, but it's cute. I think it's cute. So this week I thought we would do a little kind of history lesson of the atom, because I think the atom ties us all together, all three of our disciplines. I'm so excited um, for this. I think you guys probably know most of these things that I'm going to talk to you about, but maybe you don't know all of the details or the cool fun facts. So we're going to kind of talk about how the atom was conceived of and discovered and the experiments that were done. And wow, yeah, how we got to where we are today with our thoughts on the atom. Are we sure this isn't Beth's episode? Um, we're pretty <laughs> positive that it's me talking. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, I haven't done the research, but like... If I had, then it could be. I guess it could I be. Mean, I will say for this episode, there is a beautiful marrying of chemists and physicists together. Oh, so cute. And when we get when we get to more modern interpretations of the atom, we're going to see that chemistry and physics works together really well. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, after all, chemistry is just applied physics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but physics is just applied math, so... Uh, so I first wanted to start you guys off uh, with a question, as I think we kind of often do in this show, and that is, when do you think the atom was kind of first conceived of? Where did, where did it, the idea of it come from? Sienna, you go first, because I think I have a good answer. Oh, well, I don't have any <laughs> Where did it first come from? Uh, it means undividable in Greek, and I think... That's true. Yeah. Maybe the 1800s. The 1800s? Okay. Could have been, like, discovered. I don't okay. know. Uh -huh. I remember researching this, like, for, like, my first ever week of A-level chemistry. So I was, like, 16, just finished the exams that everybody does in the UK. We're starting my slightly more specialist exams. And our chemistry teacher gave us the task to make a poster and give, like, a five-minute presentation on something chemical and I had to do a presentation about the atom and I researched it and apparently was it Aristotle I was gonna say I actually just remembered from my philosophy class Aristotle's theory of matter Ooh. yeah so like ancient Greece a long time ago so I want to second the Aristotle answer here okay so you're Sienna you're changing to Aristotle I, for I forgot about Aristotle until just now and I was like oh yeah I wrote an essay about Aristotle's theory of matter and how like Everything is either matter or form, and you can go from the smallest thing that is matter that cannot be divided would be an atom, I guess. Yeah, that is correct. It does go to the ancient Greeks. Um, about 2,500 years ago, um, Aristotle did have his theory of matter, but it's more attributed to these two guys, Democritus and Leucippus. Uh, in the 4th and 5th centuries BC. Hmm. They were philosophers, Greek philosophers. And um, I think this might be familiar to you. They had the idea that if you took a loaf of bread and you cut it in half, and then you took half of that and cut it in half, and then you took that half and cut it in half yeah. and cut it in half and keep going all the way down, yeah. what would you be left with that is, like, indivisible? Like, you can't cut it any further. And, of course, they, they weren't... Which is a really cool chain of logic, yeah. to be fair. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was just them kind of hypothesizing about this. And so they called this thing atomos, 
which is Greek for not cuttable, as Sienna said. Sienna, you're correct. Yeah, I know my stuff. And they kind of thought that these things would make up everything, and they come in different shapes and types. And it's kind of cute how they thought about atoms in this way, because they thought that iron atoms, because iron is so strong, it's a strong material, it has hooks, and it hooks together and is very strong. Mm. And salt, because salt, when you taste it, is very, like, spicy, like, uh, I don't know, pointy. They thought that salt atoms had spikes on them. And so it was really interesting to read about this, how they kind of ascribed sensory characteristics to physical characteristics of materials. Um, They also thought that, like, clay atoms were like a ball and socket because it's so malleable. This is all so clever. Like, even though today, obviously we have the tools to say that none of this is actually true. It's a really solid chain of logic. Mm-hmm. You can really understand where they, where they were coming from in these things. Yeah. So uh, this was in ancient Greece about 2,500 years ago. I want to ask you, when do you think the next stage of development in the theory of the atom or the ideas of the atom comes into play? Uh, no idea. I'm going to say that I don't know of anything between... The name atom, or like the Greek bit, and quantum mechanics. That's quite a leap. Well, yeah. <laughs> and quantum mechanics, yeah, basically. But I mean, quantum mechanics, the theory was being developed in the late 19th, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. Equally, there has to have been something before. I'm going to say like mid 19th century, like 1850s, that's my guess. I'm going to say around 1810. Okay. You guys are very close. The Interestingly, the next development in the theory of the atom is with John Dalton in 1808. Oh. Dalton. His name sounds familiar somehow. So, yeah, nearly 2,000 years later, they started to form a better picture of the atom. But it actually was pretty close to the original philosophy or philosophers, Greek philosophers' thoughts on the atom because John Dalton theorized, but also had experiments to prove that elements are made up of uh, discrete packets of matter, and there's these indivisible things that are are arranged to make compounds. It's often called the billiard ball model, and it's an idea that atoms, instead of there being salt atoms and iron atoms and, uh, you know, clay atoms, it's certain atoms of elements, what we now know as elements like carbon and nitrogen and oxygen, that make up compounds or molecules that make up clay and iron and salt. So I've just looked him up in case you're interested, Sienna, because I really recognize his name and I couldn't remember why. <laughs> and apparently he was born on the 6th of September, 1766, and he died on the 27th of July, 1844. And he lived in, he was born in Cumberland, and he died in Manchester. I think he worked most of his life in Manchester. So there you go. Yeah. So he built on this kind of philosophical idea that the Greeks had, but used experiments to prove that actually no iron and clay and salt aren't made up of their own atoms. They're made up of a common set of elements or a common set of atoms. But his model was really, as we say, a billiard ball model because it was just this hard, solid thing that interacts with other elements to form molecules and stuff. So then, we flash forward another hundred years to 1904, or about a hundred years, to 1904 with J.J. Thompson. And in my episode about plasmas, I briefly touched on this experiment, Uh, but I did a little bit more research into it and can talk about it a little bit more confidently now. So, J.J. Thompson did the cathode ray experiment. Do you guys remember what the cathode ray experiment was? Uh, Do I remember the cathode ray experiment? I'm gonna have to go with no on that one. No, I don't remember either. (laughs) Okay. So, (laughs) in my plasma episode, I was talking about the cathode ray experiment because... In these experiments, they kind of saw as a byproduct, they saw a plasma, positively charged ions. Um, What they were actually looking at or looking for was this beam of electrons. But at the time, they didn't know that they were electrons. So what they were doing is they put these two metal plates in a vacuum-sealed glass tube. And the two plates were 
spread apart by a certain distance, but one of them had a hole in it. It kind of looked like a donut. And when they put a current between the plates, they saw a beam would kind of shoot between the plates and go through this little hole and hit the side of the glass tube, one side of the glass tube. And uh, that side of the glass tube had a special material on it that lit up when it was hit with beams of stuff. And so J.J. Uh, Thompson and his team saw that this beam of, they didn't know what, it was just a, a ray, they called it a cathode ray, it was affected by magnetic and electric fields. So they could bend it up using a positive electric field, and they could bend it around using a magnet in certain orientations. So They could bend it up using a, did you say magnetic field or electric field? They used both. So they used an electric field past, if you're following the stream of the beam, after it shoots out through the metal plates, they applied a diff- an electrical difference and saw that the beam would bend towards the positive terminal of that electrical difference. They also took like a U-magnet, which I guess is a type of bar magnet, the one that looks like a U. They would stick the cathode ray tube in between that magnet, and that bent the beam downwards. So that meant that the ray, this beam, had a charge. So they knew that it had a charge and a negative charge because it could it was bending towards the positive because opposites attract. So they knew that this beam of stuff had a negative charge. What J.J. Thompson also could do, you could estimate the mass of these rays from the heat that was generated by the cathode ray tube. So knowing the heat that was generated in this experiment and the fact that it had a negative charge, he actually calculated that this was a particle with a mass of a thousand times less than hydrogen. And at the time, hydrogen was the smallest known atom. It was the smallest thing in the universe. Not 200, Beth. (laughs) Yes, not 200 times, a thousand times. So, essentially, what J.J. Thompson concluded is that the atom has these positive and negative components. So he called them corpuscles. Corpuscles? Corpuscles? I can't pronounce it. Corpuscles, I think. Corpuscles, yeah. I want to say corpuscules, but it's, I don't think it's Gross. corpuscules. <laughs> um, so he called these things corpuscles, but we now call them electrons. So he discovered the electron using this cathode ray tube experiment, and, and others did similar experiments to verify the presence of electrons. How this relates to the atom is he used different metals in his cathode ray tube, and each time he used a different metal, he still saw this beam of electrons. So he concluded that atoms of all matter are made of both positive and negative components, and he re uh, he took Dalton's model, the billiard ball model, and basically stuck electrons inside of it. So this is called the plum pudding model. Maybe you've heard of it. Yum! And so Beth, you're probably very familiar with plum pudding, <laughs> but as it was explained in um, something I was watching, it's kind of like a blueberry muffin. So if you, if you had a muffin and you break it open, all those blueberries are distributed throughout the muffin. And that's kind of like how the electrons in his model are distributed throughout this positive dough. So he envisioned the positive charge as this kind of cloud or dough around the electrons that held them in place. Not stationary. They're buzzing around kind of randomly within this dough. But if you like froze the atom in time and broke it open, it would be like looking into a blueberry muffin and you'd see electrons distributed within this positive dough. Or pudding, as he called it. Yeah, I don't know. Pudding or lemon poppy seed muffin. Who's to say, really? Or a sultana scone. Or a sultana scone. I'm not familiar with what that is, but... Raisin scones. And see, we've already brought it back to food, just for you, Sienna. (laughs) (laughs) We're like ten minutes in and we're already there. We can close the podcast here. (laughs) So this, this was... Thompson's, J.J. Thompson's plum pudding model was kind of revolutionary at the time because Dalton still thought that atoms were indivisible. They were this unit that was, you know, the the core thing that could not be broken down any further. Thompson proved, and showed and proved, that there are actually smaller bits that make up the atom. Protons, or positive charge, he didn't call them protons, positive stuff and electrons, this, these negative charges. So he showed that actually atoms could be broken down further into smaller components. Now I want to take this moment in our history lineage to say that chemists still think of atoms as defined as kind of the 
unit of an element that can't be broken down any further before it becomes not that element, if that makes sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Because this kind of idea that the Greek philosophers had that you can break something down until it can't be broken down anymore is a really interesting idea. And we still kind of hold on to that. Like an iron atom is the smallest amount of iron. One iron atom is the smallest amount of iron that you can kind of possess before mm -hmm. you no longer have iron. You just have yeah. electrons and neutrons and protons and quarks. And like, we can break it down further, but it's no longer iron. Yep. I think it's nice that we still kind of harken back to the ancient Greeks and uh, have this idea of an indivisible unit. So after the plum pudding model with J.J. Thompson, we jump forward a few years to 1911 with Ernest Rutherford and his gold foil experiment. Are you familiar with the gold foil experiment? I am. I don't know about Sienna. I am not particularly familiar with the gold foil experiment, but I am familiar with the name Rutherford. Yes, he's quite a quite a big name in chemistry. Quite a big name. Did he win a Nobel Prize? And in physics. Uh, maybe. <laughs> he might have. Uh, he's definitely got a lab named after him because I live really... Or my parents live really He's definitely got a building named after him on my campus. <laughs> okay, so... I remember learning about the gold foil experiment in first year electromagnetism. So... We'll see how much I can remember. But he fired... Yeah, he must have fired atoms of some kind. I can't remember what brand of atom he fired at a very, very thin gold foil. And he was measuring the angle that they came out at at the same... Like, on the other side. So you send them through... Oh, I do remember this experiment. Yeah. So you send them through. What kind of atom are they? It was alpha particles. Alpha particles, okay. Oh. Which have a, which have a two plus charge. This is the important part. So he shot alpha particles to the gold leaf. He measured the angle that they came out at the other side, and he found that some of them had actually done 180 and come back towards him. Mm -hmm. They were deflected. Yeah. I'll leave it. I'll leave it to you from now so great explanation he took a very thin leaf of gold foil as you said and he fired alpha particles which is just uh, a nucleus of two neutrons and two protons at the time they didn't actually know what alpha particles were made of they just knew that it was from radioactive decay and they expected that if you fired it at a thing if you fired alpha particles at um gold it would Ha like have some effect like there, there would be some effect what they were expecting was that the particles would go through the foil and hit the other side of this detector the detector was a big ring of fluorescent material so it's basically a big circle around the gold foil so they could measure at what angles the particles if deflected were deflected but they were actually expecting mm -hmm. that all of the particles would go through. They thought the alpha particles would be so small and moving so fast that they would go right through this plum pudding model. This is where your idea, Sienna, of the poppy seed muffin comes into play. Because if you fired a bullet at a poppy seed muffin... <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> it would go straight through that dough and avoid really any of the poppy seeds because they're so small. So... The alpha particles, they reasoned, would not be affected by the electrons that they knew were in there. Mm -hmm. And this positively charged dough of the plum pudding model would be so light and non-dense. I don't know what the opposite of non-dense is. It would be so light that the alpha particles would just whiz right through it and not be affected. Hmm. And so, and so, because they thought the interactions would between, be between the negatively charged electrons and the positively charged alpha particle. And it would be deflected by that, if anything. But they didn't think it would happen because the electrons are so spread out in this poppy seed muffin. <laughs> what they saw is the majority of the alpha particles went straight through. They went whizzing right through. And on the other side of the gold foil, they saw a lot of activity, a lot of lighting up fluorescing of the um, fluorescent material. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> what, they, what they didn't expect was that certain particles sometimes were deflected. 
And so this meant that there was some hard, positively charged nucleus that deflected these particles, but that the rest was empty space because most of the particles flew right through this empty space, but sometimes, on occasion, a particle was deflected, and they reasoned this was because it was hitting some hard nucleus, or it was being deflected by a positively charged nucleus, because positive charges repel each other. Mm -hmm. So if you've got an alpha particle flying towards a positively charged nucleus, it's gonna deflect it. So if the billiard ball model was correct, the um, all of the alpha particles would bounce right back because they really wouldn't be able to penetrate through this thin gold foil, right? So the billiard ball model implies that all of these things are lined up with no space between them. Is that the point? Yeah, I mean, there is some space because if you think of them as spheres, you can only pack a sphere in a certain okay. way. But yeah. But the right. idea was But that, they're basically all touching. Yeah, and, and they, they had kind of moved past the billiard ball model by this point, but the idea of the billiard ball model is that it's hard and like you can't it's a billiard ball and so alpha particles would just bounce right back mm -hmm. or be deflected but wouldn't pass through if the plum pudding model was correct they expected them all to pass through because this positive charge was very spread out around the electrons mm -hmm. but what they saw was a mix of the two which shows that there was some sort of hard or positively charged nucleus and then the electrons were spread out around that. And so this is where we get the idea of the nuclear model, is that there is a positive charge concentrated in the center of an atom, and the rest is basically empty space with the electrons whizzing around it. I have a comment on the experiment. Mm -hmm. This is still at the time, like, I don't know if he did it with this particular experiment, but I know that in some experiments, Cockcroft... And uh, Cockcroft and Walton were students of his. Cockcroft and Walton, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if it was exactly this experiment, but Cockcroft and Walton were Rutherford's students, and so they were like the lackeys doing all the hard work, and they would like literally sit in a blacked out box and count the flashes that they saw. Mm -hmm. And obviously, they didn't know at this point that was actually very dangerous work, and None of that, even if that wasn't radioactive, none of that would pass health and safety today. Like, sitting in a black box is not a very good idea. Yeah. But that's how they did things at the time. Actually, no, when I was, when wow. I was researching this, I did read that uh, Rutherford actually didn't do this work. He had his subordinates conduct this Minions. research. So it was, yeah, it was Cockcroft and Walton. I should have written their names down. I'm sorry. Oh, also, you didn't... Um, no, that's fine. Um... You didn't mm -hmm. tell us the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So, um, interestingly, let me read you. This is from his Wikipedia page. In early work, Rutherford discovered the concept of radioactive half-life and the radioactive element radon. Oh. This work was performed at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Ah. Where he has a building named after him. Yes, and it is the basis for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. He was awarded in 1908, quote, for his investigations into the disintegration of the elements wow. and the chemistry of radioactive substances. Wow, I didn't know he was a McGillian. Hmm. Yeah. A McGill wow. McGillite. Welcome to the club, Rutherford. <laughs> <laughs> Glad to have you. Unfortunately, he ended up working at the wrong university, but we're not going to talk about that. Oh, did he work at um, <clears throat> Cambridge? He worked at the other place, yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with the other place? What? Am I missing something? Um, I'm I'm from Oxford, so. Oh, okay, okay, okay. You're either you're either Oxford or Cambridge. You can't be both. <laughs> Do I need to say more? <laughs> so Rutherford came up with this nuclear model that it's mainly empty space and the positive charge is in the center of the atom. And then one of his students, I think it was a student, Niels Bohr. Have you heard of him? Yeah. Um, you know his name sounds familiar. Yeah, he he was a bit of a bore, but anyway, <laughs> in. In 1913, he got together with his buddies Planck and Einstein, maybe you've heard of them, mm. <laughs> and used their quantum mathematical models to help his interpretation of the atom. Interesting. What year is this? This is in 1913, so it's only two years after Ooh. the nuclear model is developed. I mean, this is all, like, there's not yeah. one date that it happens. It's all, mm -hmm. you know, in development around the same time. 
Um, yeah. But Bohr kind of took this idea of empty space and electrons whizzing around a central positive charge. Um, yeah. And used Planck and Einstein's quantum theories to help refine this further. Wow. And so instead of the electrons being just randomly distributed around this nucleus, he envisioned them as sitting in discrete orbits, kind of like planets around a sun. So you've got a certain number of electrons very close to the nucleus, and then another ring of electrons on the outer side. And this is probably the most common... When you think of an atom, you often think of the nucleus with electrons buzzing around in certain shapes. Think of Big Bang theories like tidal transitions. <laughs> think of Jimmy Neutron. Think of our logo. Like, <laughs> It's a very common interpretation to think of the electrons spinning around in these orbits around a nucleus. Isn't that what they do? Well, no. <laughs> kind of. I personally think it's a very helpful visualization. I agree. No, I, I completely agree. And I think that until you get to the point where like quantum mechanics really matters, I think it's still a very good approximation. Yeah. I will get to this. I have a little segment about kind of the different models and their pros and cons, but I, I agree. I think when I was in first year chemistry and even kind of in high school, we were learning about all these really old, outdated... It's basically learning in science. I think I can generalize here. Learning in science is... Here's a thing. And then the next year, that thing is wrong. Here's the actual thing. Yeah. And then the next year, yeah. it's like, no, no, they taught you wrong in first year. It's actually this. And you just keep yeah. learning outdated old theories. And it's kind of frustrating. You're kind of like, why am I learning the wrong things? But I think going through this kind of taught me that, like, it's iterative. We build on what was known before. Yeah. And so knowing what was known before helps you see where we are today that's so poetic wow <laughs> start playing the like violin oh, yeah, music and <laughs> i agree and still think that we can do better definitely oh, i mean and that's i mean that's science right we're always trying to do better and and work towards a yeah like a I... better model and a better system yeah but i i also agree that the this uh, the Bohr model of the atom is really useful when we're talking about bonding yeah. or when we're talking about um, energy transitions. So yeah. a big thing that he incorporated into his model is that electrons can drop from a higher energy orbit, so further away from the nucleus, mm -hmm. to a lower energy orbit, and they emit a discrete amount of energy when they drop down from higher energies to lower energies. Yeah. And this actually gives us a lot of interesting phenomenon like mm. um, fluorescence, and I love fluorescence. basically how we can get light. And so it's, it's, it's a really interesting concept. And so, yeah, it's a flawed model, but it also helps us in a lot of ways. It gives us glowing um, green jellyfish. It does. It gives us glowing green jellyfish. I can't speak. <laughs> it gives us glowing green jellyfish. Which completely revolutionized biology. So, so the next development is about... 15 years later, and this is kind of where the dates get a little bit blurred because everyone started working on the atom, um, with Heisenberg, uh, Werner Heisenberg and Erwin Schrödinger. Maybe you've heard of them. Unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, yeah. He worked on developing the atom bomb for the German government, so, yeah. Yeah, that's all I meant by unfortunately, is the militarization of... Yeah. The atom. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes a lot of research comes out of military... Military funding, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of really important developments in fundamental things that have come about through really, really problematic means. Mm. But I think we would be doing ourselves and our listeners a disservice to not mention, like, how science has been used right and yes misused in some circumstances so mm -hmm. in this one historical instance like science was reused to like a huge detriment to a huge pain to a large population of people yes like yeah so heisenberg and schrodinger were working on um quantum physics they were doing really what Beth could probably talk more about than I can do justice. Um, <laughs> but 
the main concept that's important to our understanding of the atom and their contributions to that is Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. Beth, do you want to take a stab at the uncertainty principle? Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. There are two ways of representing it, but basically the point is that if you know the momentum of a particle really, really well, then you fundamentally cannot know with very good precision where it is. So you have to make a compromise between knowing the position accurately or knowing the momentum accurately. Mm-hmm. And you can say the same thing in terms of energy and time. You can either know the energy really well or you can measure the time really well, but you can't measure both. Yeah, I feel like I don't know these things. And then you guys describe them and I'm like, oh yeah, I did learn that sometime a long rings time ago. Some bells. Like, yeah, this definitely yeah. rings a bell. It's like, um, it's like Schrodinger's yeah. cat. The information is either there or it's not. And we don't know until we start talking about it. <laughs> No, <laughs> but okay. I read a thing that kind of said that Schrodinger's cat has been uh, kind of misappropriated beyond its actual theory. Yeah. Because it originally... Yeah, I feel like that's what I just did right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Because it's the idea that, like, systems exist in a superposition until they're observed. Like, that's the yeah. the fundamental thing, yeah. right, Beth? It's not about being alive or dead. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's... And it leads to some leads to some great jokes about like Schrodinger being in a car and they get pulled over by the car. I'm, anyway, that's I digress. Yeah, as long as he's got Heisenberg in the. <laughs> in the yeah, it's he's like, like. Wait, hold on. I'm going to tell this. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, going to tell yeah, this yeah. joke. Yeah, okay, please so please do. I want to hear it. Heisenberg and Schrodinger are barreling down the highway, and they get pulled over by the cops. And the officer walks up to the the driver, Heisenberg, and says, "Sir, do you know how fast you were going?" And he says, nope, but I know where I am. <laughs> and then the officer says, oh, uh, well, do you, mind if, do you mind if I take a look in the trunk? And Heisenberg says, yeah, sure. No, that's fine. So the officer goes over, they pop the trunk, he opens it up, and he calls over, and he says, did you know that you have a dead cat in here? And Schroeder, Schrodinger says, well, I do now. <laughs> <laughs> that's a fun little joke. I love it. I love it. Yeah, that's fine. So Heisenberg, Schrodinger, and some other chemists came together um, and they developed the quantum mechanical model of the atom using, and this is where I talk about the, the marrying of physics and chemistry together, uh, because Schrodinger and Heisenberg were both physicists, um, but they came together with the chemists to develop this quantum mechanical model. So, what is the quantum mechanical model of the atom? Well, in the quantum mechanical model, we picture not where the electrons are, orbiting around a nucleus, right? Because we can't actually know exactly where they are and where they're going. So we envision it as a probability of finding an electron at any given point in time. And one thing I read was like, it's a 90% probability that you will find an electron in these kind of clouds. So you can think of it We've had a lot of like different conceptual ideas of looking at the atom from a billiard ball or from iron atoms with the hooks holding everything together to a billiard ball to the delicious plum pudding poppy seed muffin. <laughs> so now if you picture this nucleus and there's a bee buzzing around it, the bee is going to buzz around in kind of a random disordered way. It's going to go around in a random disordered way. But if you took like a time-lapse photo of that bee buzzing around the nucleus, it would form a particular shape. And these shapes are what we call orbitals. So they took the name orbit and kind of made it something a little bit different with orbitals. And the most simple orbital is just a sphere around the nucleus. So the electron is buzzing around in this orbital of a sphere around the nucleus. And it has a 90% probability that you'll find it in that sphere at any given point in time. There are other shapes to orbitals. You can have a dumbbell shape, which is like two lobes on either side of the... I'll show you with my hands, but it's like two lobes on either side of the nucleus in the center. Kind of like two teardrops, or we call it a dumbbell shape. Um, But there are also some other crazy wackadoodle shapes um, when you get into higher energy orbitals, um, what are called the D and the F and the G orbitals. And they've got like 
donut rings with teardrops and different lobes and stuff. And so all of these orbitals are defined by mathematical formulas. And that's what's so cool about the quantum mechanical model is that it's not just kind of, oh, what do we think maybe this orbital would look like? We have, as Beth would say, we have the maths to prove it. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> or as I would say, we have the math to prove it. <laughs> and so these mathematical formulas are called wave functions. They're conceptually really interesting, I think. I think it's really cool that we can mathematically say how these shapes are defined. We don't just say, oh, it's a sphere because it's a sphere. We actually have math and like formulas that are really complicated and like I'm not going to go much further than that because I fully don't understand like the uh, what's it called? Particle in a box. And I studied this fully took a course in third year on this. Yeah. But um don't worry, I've taken several. <laughs> I just don't... We need, like, a phone a mathematician button here. Yeah, we need to, we need to phone our mathematician. Um, yeah. I would like to make a quick plug for Sean Carroll. Um, he's an American quantum mechanics researcher, quantum mechanics physicist. Mm-hmm. And um, I've heard him talk about quantum mechanics a few different times in, like, popular science programs or whatever. And he does a really, really good explanation of quantum mechanics. So cool. if anybody is interested, go and check him out. Yeah, I should have I, I should have looked at some of his stuff. Maybe I've never heard of him, but um, this is something I kind of struggled with because I think the quantum mechanical model is really cool. Yeah, yeah. But I don't fully understand it because I don't really study theoretical chemistry. And so I kind of just wanted to leave it at we've got these wave functions. We've got really cool shaped orbitals yeah. because I think diving into the nitty-gritty of it would just be too difficult to do on this podcast definitely especially without any kind of diagram or anything exactly and that was the other thing is i wanted to talk about the different shapes of orbitals Mm -hmm. but again i'm just leaving it at spheres and dumbbells and then some cool donut teardrop shape things because yeah yeah without the visual representations in front of you it's it's difficult yeah yeah um but i could talk forever about like orbitals and like molecular orbitals so not just the atomic orbitals and how they orient themselves but then how they form hybrid orbitals to come together it's really cool stuff we're actually gonna i'll talk a little bit about some of it in a minute but Mm -hmm. but so is this where a quantum leap comes in right what or the quantum jump or whatever it's called the quantum hop i'm not from the little what's that so there's the the fact that like some of these orbitals are separated in space, right? Like the donut orbital has a hole in the middle or like the dumbbell orbitals don't really come together at a point, right? Like they're teardrops on either side of the nucleus. So that if the electron can be found in that orbital, but that orbital is separated in space, that electron like has to hop from one end of the orbital to the other. So yes, this is actually something that I kind of just accepted for the longest time. And it's a question <laughs> my mom posed to me, actually. She kind of said, well, if you've got this teardrop shape but there's a a line of zero essentially through the nucleus like there's two teardrops but they're not connected how can you find an electron in either of those lobes and what I think the answer that I came up with I have a a quickly googled answer here from general chemistry online the question is how do electrons cross nodes if they can never be at the node how does an electron travel between the lobes of a p orbital if the p orbital is the dumbbell shaped orbital yeah how does it uh, travel between the lobes of a p orbital if the probability of being at the lobes is zero? The answer from Fred Senesi, uh is you're looking at a wave, the p orbital, and thinking about particles. The electron wave has no trouble traveling past a plane of zero amplitude, the nodal plane. Yeah. Consider a vibrating guitar string with a node in the center of the string. The string can move up and down on either side of the node, hmm. even though the string at the node doesn't move at all. Like a wave. The P orbital behaves exactly in this way. So you can almost think of it, yeah, like a guitar string mm-hmm. or a sine, okay. a sine wave. That was a very good explanation. So yeah, that's, and that's something I also wondered, and I just kind of chalked it up to the its probabilities. It's not definites, but a better explanation is that it's it's a wave, yeah. not a particle. Yeah. So Your explanation is also correct. Thank you. So the quantum mechanical model... I think it's really interesting. It's pretty cool. We've got these orbitals that are defined by wave functions. And 
we depict them as clouds. It's also can be called the cloud model. Cloud. <laughs> Electrons are just up on the cloud. Yeah. <laughs> Uploaded to the cloud. An interesting thing is that protons and neutrons were actually discovered after quantum mechanics was starting to be theorized and worked on. So we almost kind of had this orbital depiction of the atom, or the depiction of the atom with orbitals, before we knew about protons and neutrons. Because the discovery of protons was in 1919 Mm -hmm. by our good friend Ernest Rutherford, and neutrons was in 1932 by James Chadwick. I'm not going to go into how those were discovered. It's probably a whole separate podcast. We can talk about that. But I just thought it was interesting that those discoveries kind of came after we started to shift away from the Bohr model of the atom and towards this quantum mechanical orbital model. Yeah. But I thought you said that this was in the 50s that they were working on. Yeah. So I'm confused as to how that came before it. (laughs) I'm confused about the timing. No, this was in... So the, the... quantum mechanical mar- model started in the 20s. So the proton the proton and the quantum mechanical model were very close together in oh, okay, the yeah. timeline. Yeah. But the neutron wasn't discovered until 1932. So yeah. and, I mean we're I still still today we're still refining right, yeah. orbital theory or wow. the quantum mechanical model of the atom. So this is kind of where I end my history lesson and wow. ta- and talk passionately about atomic orbitals for a little bit because It's currently our most correct way of representing atoms with these clouds of probability. As we said earlier, though, it sometimes is easier to understand fundamental chemistry topics using the outdated model. Mm -hmm. So the Bohr planetary model is really useful for Lewis dot structures to describe bonding. Lewis dot structures show the outermost electrons, and it's a simple way of showing how electrons pair up to make bonds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super convenient, and it helps you think about what electrons in elements are available to make bonds. Yeah. And it, it explains very well mm-hmm. the bonding characteristics of elements. I will also argue that the quantum mechanical model is super cool and molecular orbitals show it in really cool geometries and stuff, but... But they're so hard to draw. You want to draw those on your exams? Yeah. <laughs> well, and this, is, and this is an interesting thing is I've, I found in certain disciplines of, of chemistry as I've learned more we're kind of at the the edge of, of research is in the third and fourth dimension. Like, quantum mechanical model talks about orbitals in 3D space, and it's very hard to represent that on a textbook page, exactly. let alone on a podcast. Yeah. So, what, what space does a podcast take up? One-dimensional? <laughs> Sound? Oh, no, we got time. We can call it two-dimensional, right? Yeah, yeah. Let's call it two-dimensional. Yeah, oh, it's it's two-dimensional, two yeah. Sound and time. But yeah, I think it's an interesting idea that we're kind of at the 3D edge, yeah. you know, like the third dimension is where we're, and I think, you know, we're going into time in the fourth dimension and stuff, and, but it's... Yeah, no, it is. It's hard it, to visualize. The, the quantum mechanical model, mo- model, the quantum mechanical understanding of of electron orbitals is really interesting, and obviously, I don't know very much about it, but is obviously really important. But like the, um, what was the other one? The Bohr what model. The, other model? the Bohr planetary model. Yeah, the Bohr model. The Bohr model is also a really good yeah visualization, mm-hmm. and like it's much harder to visualize probability waves and understand what quantum mechanics is and wrap your your mind around particles in boxes and that kind of thing than it is to just think of little planets whizzing around a sun. Yeah. Which is something we're much more familiar with. Especially when, like, depending on what you're studying, right? Like, the quantum mechanical model is telling us where they probably are and how they can, like, probably then behave. But if you know something happens, there's no probability involved, right? And you're like, I know that I just made sodium bind to chlorine making salt. So, like, in some senses, at that point, there's, like there is a use to not representing things as probabilities. Totally. Like simplifying it is definitely useful yeah. um, in like early, early chemistry lessons and stuff. And also like in more, I don't want to downplay like biology, but like in more simple systems in biology, you don't want to think about the orbitals and how they're interacting and the highest unoccupied molecular orbital, the HOMO and the lowest unoccupied molecular orbital, the LUMO, like those things you don't tend to think about, right? You don't, 
want to think about it. We barely think about chemical bonding at all, but I am offended that you called simpler, like, biology a simpler system, because that is, like, (laughs) untrue. No, I'm not. No, 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 I'm not. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm not saying that biology is simpler by any means. I'm saying that you simplify chemistry to make it easier to understand, like, how the body functions, how neurons work, like, such Mm. wrinkly brain topics that if we got bogged down in how the orbitals are interacting, we'd, we'd never get anywhere. I would argue that biology is far too complicated, and that's why I stayed away from it, because it's just too hard. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's arguments to be made for both, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. So, and this, another interesting thing is that this atomic orbital model is our current understanding, but it's going to change. There's something that's going to come along and we're going to change it. I mean, we're already refining the model to help talk about molecular bonding, as I've kind of alluded to. We have something called VESPER theory, or VESEPER theory, which is the valence shell electron pair repulsion theory, which describes molecular bonding with orbitals. And basically, when we talk about the outermost Mm -hmm. electrons, if you think about the planetary model, the ones on the outside, um, those outermost electrons will repel each other and when they form bonds with other elements, they all repel each other with certain degrees and angles and want to minimize this repulsion. Mm-hmm. And that's what Vesper theory says. And then we also have what's called orbital hybridization with molecules. And that's where orbitals, so if you think of our, our lobe P orbitals and our spherical S orbitals, I'm now defining them as S is the sphere and P is the dumbbell shape. When forming molecular bonds, they're actually going to become something a little bit of the two. Mm-hmm. So it's not the dumbbell shapes, and it's not the spheres. It's, well, it kind of looks like dumbbell shapes, but in a different orientation. And we don't have enough time to go into molecular orbital theory on this episode. Maybe I'll do an episode on it. But it is so interesting how these hybrid orbitals explain bonding and bonding geometries within molecules so accurately. And like you think of what a water molecule looks like in 3d space that's defined by the hybridization of its orbitals you think of what methane looks like in 3d space that's defined by the hybridization of its orbitals like it any molecule well okay not any molecule but mm-hmm. i'm very passionate about it i mean you're right like you're, you're right and i remember learning about this in able chemistry about the orientation of these things but maybe for our listeners who might not have studied this, who might have studied it a long time ago. Yeah. And you can't see our hands, like, trying to indicate all of these things. Maybe, can we use water as an example? Can you take that and run with it? Sure. Say, what is the shape of water and why is it like that? Sure. Um, The molecular formula for water is H2O. That's two hydrogens and one oxygen. Hydrogen has one valence electron and... Which means one electron... In its outermost orbital. Yes, and that orbital has the shape of a sphere. It's a 1s orbital, and it's a spherical shape. Uh, Oxygen. Oxygen has six electrons in its outermost shell, and these sit in two types of orbitals. The 2s, which is the outermost spherical orbital, and the 2p, which is the outermost dumbbell-shaped orbitals. Can I just, like give an analogy to like help picture what the dumbbell orbitals look like sure so like if you blow up a balloon Mm -hmm. and then if you just like at where you tie it off at the little end i guess that's where the nucleus would be located and the balloon is like coming off of that that's Mm -hmm. pretty much the shape of the orbital if there were two of them for people who are listening and then yeah there's one on either end yeah you have one on either side you're holding them both in your hand one goes straight down one goes straight up Mm -hmm. And your hand is the nucleus, right? Yeah. Like, and then within the shape of that balloon, that's ninety percent probability where you're going to find that electron. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But when it is in a bonding configuration, it forms what's called a hybrid orbital. So it's not spherical plus, or it's not spherical and dumbbell shaped. It's a mix of the two, called an sp3 orbital, and that just means that it's got characteristics of both. Instead of looking like holding those balloons that you said, Sienna, like holding uh, six different balloons, mm-hmm. it looks like three legs, as if you were holding three balloons all pointing downwards, like three legs on a tripod, and then one sticking up. 
I'm using my hands to represent this, but I think you can visualize three legs pointing down and one sticking up, almost like a little tripod. That is the SP3 orbital. And that holds... But they're all made of balloons. Yeah, they're all balloons. They're all big lobes. <laughs> and that holds the six electrons for oxygen. Now, what happens is the hydrogen spherical orbitals interact with two of those. You can think of it like two of the legs of the tripod. And then the stick going up out of the tripod and the other leg form what's called lone pairs. And that forms the geometry of oxygen with a bond angle of 104.5 degrees between the two hydrogens because those two legs that it's bonded to on the tripod are 104.5 degrees apart. Hopefully you can visualize that and that makes sense. I think it's really cool because oxygen can also form a different type of geometry depending on what if it's uh, bound to a carbon um, or a nitrogen and especially with carbon we can explain double and triple bonds using uh, molecular orbital theory. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> I didn't I'm really sorry. I didn't want to make you go into that much detail. But, like, as far as I was wanting to get was that the shape of water is that you have, like, oxygen, then you have these two little hydrogen legs yeah. sticking out at the bottom. So it's kind of like a triangle or, like, upside-down V-shape. Yeah, no, and, and, and more simply, if you just want to splice in a simple answer, uh, because of the atomic orbitals and because of the molecular orbitals, oxygen and hydrogen interact in water to form that triangle shape. And if you think about it, that triangle shape is like looking at a tripod's legs from one at one side. So... If they're splayed out very far apart. Yes, yes, by 104.5 degrees. <laughs> Uh, yes, 104.5 degrees yeah. apart. Um, so why, what do you find so exciting? Why are you so excited about the geometry of atoms and mo molecules? Because I think having gone from conceptualizing, thinking about an atom as this uncuttable thing, to now we can actually say how it relates in physical space to other atoms and how mm -hmm. we can accurately and precisely define that using mathematical models or math, not even models, just using math and maths and see <laughs> that play out in our examples. Now I will, I will say that like with molecular orbital theory, it breaks down after the first row of the periodic table because uh, transition metal chemistry is really complicated because there are a lot of electrons to come into play. Um, but the first 20 elements. Okay, second row, sorry, of the periodic table. <laughs> Um, I was wondering, I'm like... The first two, it, for the first two rows. It, it holds true for the first two rows, which is really interesting because that contains nitrogen, oxygen, and hydrogen, and some really important elements in organic chemistry and in kind of a lot of matter that makes up us and the universe. So, <laughs> yeah. As I put in my notes, it's all really cool advanced chemistry level stuff. <laughs> and I hope that maybe, maybe some of our listeners are encouraged by this and think it's cool too, because I think it's really cool, but... I think it's really cool too. I very much enjoyed this. Oh, good. So I have a quiz. I'm ready for this quiz. I'm really ready. All right. So uh, first, we need to hear your buzzer sound. Sienna, what's your buzzer sound? Beep beep. Okay. Nice, nice. Beth. Mm, ding dong. <laughs> okay. Beep beep and ding dong. All right. So first question. When was the idea of an uncuttable atom first proposed? Ding dong. That's Beth. 2,500 years ago. Very good. By Democritus and somebody whose name began with an L. Yeah. Leucippus. 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 Yeah. Leucippus. We're deciding on Leucippus. Yeah. Good. Okay, yes. 2,500 years ago. Second question. What experiment disproved the plum pudding model? That was um, Rutherford. Ding, uh, beep, beep. <laughs> uh, let me try again. Beep, beep. Yes, Sienna. That was Rutherford. He disproved the plum pudding model. He mm -hmm. hung a thin sheet of gold because he was, I don't know, rich enough to do this type of thing. Actually, gold probably wasn't that expensive in a thin sheet. But either way. He was like, oh, I'm just going to play around with some gold and shoot atoms through it and see what happens. And he, as he did, he saw that some of them, like, 
hit a density and turned back, but some of them went straight through, which meant it couldn't be it couldn't be all dense, but it also couldn't be all not dense. Correct. Yeah. Plum pudding. Plum pudding theory said it was all not dense. Billiard model theory said it was all dense. He decided it's something in between. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. The gold foil, gold foil experiment. Anything to add, Beth? The billiard ball in plum pudding theory. Yes. <laughs> the don't bite into your plum pudding. There's a billiard ball in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> the next time I have any kind of pudding, I'm going to be very careful. I was just going to say, it's like when people hide like diamond rings inside of like a dessert because they're going to propose yeah, to their... Yeah, and then you end up choking. Yeah. Or you bite down and break your tooth. Like That's the model we've ended up yeah. with. Yeah. <laughs> In short. <laughs> I want to add that the really important part of the gold leaf stuff is that the bit that it hits or comes near to is a positive charge, which is what makes it turn back. Yeah. Yes. True. Yeah, yeah. So the, the hard diamond ring in the plum pudding was a positive charge. Yeah. 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 Okay, final question for all the marvels, because you guys are tied. Describe an orbital shape other than a sphere. Ding, ding, ding dong. Bang, beep, Wait, beep, beep, beep is mine. I'm sorry. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what's I think, happened. I think that's, <laughs> that's going to be best because she said her correct noise. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I kind of did and I kind of didn't. I'm going to take the dumbbells and I'm going to steal with no citation the um, explanation given from one Sienna Drake, <laughs> oh look I just cited it, um, that they look like balloons and you get two in every spatial dimension. So you get two in the x-axis, two in the y-axis, and two in the z-axis. Mm-hmm. Yes. Beep beep. Sienna, do you have an <laughs> orbital shape? I sure do. I have my favorite shape, which is the donut shape, because because <laughs> donuts, because because food. Of obviously. course, it's your yeah. favorite shape. <laughs> okay, very good. I was so relieved, Beth. I was like, oh no, is Beth gonna steal the donut? <laughs> Not the last donut. I want no, the last worry. donut. I would like to be clear for anybody in the UK. I mean, these days the world is so globalized and Americanized that. Even in the UK, if you say donut shape, people will probably think of an American donut. But to me, a donut is like a jammy donut. So it's solid and filled with jam mm. and it's not got a ring and it's not got a hole and it's not like a bagel. But what we're talking about is this bagel shape, which I think is unarguable. Very good point. But the bagel shape, if you go to Montreal or New York, the bagel part is actually quite thin and the hole is very big. I like the donut shape because the hole is slightly smaller. It's true. Yes. That's tough, you see. That's a difficult one. <laughs> then we're really getting down to the nitty-gritty of hole size. You know. <laughs> I was also just going to say about the jammy donut orbital is that takes me back to this thinking of the billiard ball inside of plum pudding. But, like, the jammy donut model of Adams would be the opposite of that, where it's plum pudding inside of a billiard ball. <laughs> <laughs> which might not be a useful this probably not a useful atomic theory at all but that's why i'm theorizing it now when we don't need it you know yeah no f- fair <laughs> enough uh i don't know i didn't come across that in my research but uh maybe someone thought of that it's gonna be published real soon let me tell you um <laughs> you can definitely patent that <laughs> <laughs> the jammy donut atomic theory <laughs> I just yeah. gotta, I gotta share with you guys, because it's relevant, and whenever I can share a meme, I'm going to share a meme. There's this great meme that I found a number of years ago that I use to send to my undergraduate students. So it says, it's, uh, <laughs> it's that meme of, it's that picture of Squidward in the bubble episode of Spongebob, if you're familiar, where he's like contorted into all these weird shapes. And it just says, when she says she's into DZ2 orbitals, and he's like all like loopy and he kind of looks like a donut with his arms sticking out and stuff. But if you actually look up what a DZ2 orbital looks like, it's this shape. Like it's actually wow. accurate. And I just love it so much. And I've sent it to you in the chat. You can take a look Thank at it. Thank you. That's wonderful. I like that a lot. Who is this guy again? Squidward? Squid. Do you not know who Squidward is? The Squidward orbital theory. I didn't watch. I didn't have cable growing up. Remember? Oh, uh, to... right, right, right. The Squidward orbital theory. Yes. <laughs> the Squidward orbital theory. (laughs) 
So I'd like to thank Tyler DeWitt on YouTube for his explanations of the cathode ray experiment, gold foil experiment, and atomic models timeline, as well as Crash Course on YouTube for their history of atomic chemistry. Wikipedia. Thank you, Tyler and Crash Course. Yeah. Wikipedia for some of their more advanced concepts on wave functions and Vesper. Uh, Ellison for our fantastic theme music. And all of our listeners. I am Alistair. I'm Beth. I am Sienna. And we'll see you with a 90% probability again soon. <laughs>